I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. With Boyd Matheson. Welcome back to Inside Sources. This is Taylor Morgan. I am here with Mara, Mara Carabello today, filling in for Boyd Matheson. We're glad you're here. Thank you for joining us nice on your Wednesday together. afternoon. Uh, Mara, the pandemic, mm-hmm. when it started, there were a lot of unknowns. It was pretty scary. It was a scary time, right? Was, yeah. And uh, politicians, especially governors, uh, were given a lot of power to make decisions uh, to, you know, save lives ultimately, right, to, to respond to the pandemic. There are a lot of lessons uh, from this experience about how much power should actually be given to elected officials in this kind of a public emergency, whether it's a governor or a legislature or another uh, body like at the county level, right, a health department. Right. There are a lot of things we can learn. Uh, and I, yeah, I love that we're reflecting on this because the pandemic, as you suggested, was if there was a good reason to take an extraordinary measure, the conditions around the pandemic would have given us that rationale. Yes. But who overstepped and what lessons? I think it's so important to public policy that we reflect on what has happened. Right. Yeah. We have to be able to learn uh, and, and be better going forward, not only in you know being prepared for and being able to respond to this kind of a pandemic in the future, right. hopefully just to prevent it altogether, uh, but also politically, right, with our process and with our institutions, uh, what was good, what was bad, what kind of safeguards maybe do we need to have in place? Well, we have an expert with us now to talk through uh, some of these things. We have Daniel Order, uh, who is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, to to help us understand some of these uh, complicated implications, Daniel, thank you for joining Inside Sources today. How are hey, you? And so what, me. what can you tell us about uh, you know these emergency powers? What should we do? I, th- I think we really in the, this pandemic saw, as you mentioned, governors really, uh, you know, I, I would say, abusing even their their authority. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm uh, based in California personally, and in California, we still have. Uh, two years later, an emergency declaration is still in place. So the governor, you know, two years later, still claims essentially unlimited power to um, enact any regulation that he wishes through emergency order, um, claiming all the power of the legislator. And that that's really a, a frightening amount of power to put in, in the hands of one person with no end points, no accountability. Mm. Um, and I think we saw a lot of the abuses of that over the course of the pandemic, um, really illogical policies being made basically by whim of individual uh, governors across the country. 
Um, and I, I think the, the scary thing for me is that a lot of these governors now I think have an appetite for the use of emergency power. They're declaring emergencies over all kinds of things. Uh, you know, New York State uh, declaring a gun control emergency or gun violence emergency, for instance, using the same emergency authority that they declared pandemic emergencies. So I think there's a lot of potential for uh, use and abuse of emergency powers. Uh, and so it's really a good time to take stock now that we're at the tail end of the, the pandemic to take stock of um, what went wrong, right, what went wrong, and how we can uh, in the future rein in the, the power of governors. They can't abuse these, this, this power. And, Daniel, you bring up a point. Like, what makes me it, – it makes me think that one of the things that's unique about governors' executive powers uh, are they're not really partisan. It's sort of – the person in the seat wanting power. So it's it's equally abused often by Republican and Democratic governors, which makes it interesting because it's about a power dynamic. So when you want to rein those in and bring back, usually, as you suggest, it's a matter of how long and how far reaching they are. Um, I would be one that says I want my governor to have executive powers, to be able to act quickly and unilaterally in specific instances. How do we make how do we put guardrails on it without eliminating the power? Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest one that a lot of states have, Utah has uh, some of these limits, which are, I think are very good, are uh, time limits on how long an emergency can be in effect, where you have to go back to the legislator and get authority to continue uh, emergency authorization. You know, I think, uh, you know, back in March 2020, we all, you know, this, this, this pandemic, we didn't know how to respond. Governors had to act very quickly, but still, you know, six months later, a year later, a year and a half later, still operating by executive power doesn't make any sense. There's been plenty of time for the legislator to step in and act. So I think limiting the, the, the length of how long an emergency declaration can go, go on for, um, I think setting out substantive, some, some limits on, on, policy, on what they can enact without going to the legislator um, or, or having the legislator at least set some guidance. For instance, governors got to decide on their own accord what was an essential business, what was not essential, who could open, what capacity, when. There were no guidelines set by the legislators in um, any state that I'm aware of. One day they could have done this. They could have held hearings. They could have passed guidelines for the governor, and then the governor can implement those guidelines. Um, so I think substantively you know, setting some limits on the operation of power, setting guidelines and, and uh, for, the, for the governor would be really valuable. Um, and then just having, uh, you know, I think one of the things is um, notice and comment requirements. So the governor has to go to the public and get their rules approved by the public, if not immediately, at least sometime after the emergency. So they can't just uh, be unaccountable uh, for the rules that they're enacting. So the public gets to comment and to suggest changes. Um, that's another, I think, really valuable reform that would help uh, limit uh, the uses of these power and the emergency orders. We are speaking with Daniel Order, uh, an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, about the use of emergency powers uh, and the implications of that and, and what uh, we should do with these emergency powers going forward. Uh, Daniel, you said you live there in California. And to anyone listening who is also a Californian, I just want to make sure you know that Utah is a terrible place and you should not move here, uh, even if you want to escape the rule of Governor Gavin Newsom. There are other states that are far better. And just I went, to, I went to law school at BYU, so I'm a, a big fan of Utah. So you know how terrible gonna, Utah is. Then. You don't want to move but... here. Okay, everybody stay out. It's all right. Okay, so you mentioned that uh, in California, the governor uh, it, still – Two years later, still has an yeah. emergency order in effect. 
Do you know of any other states uh, in the country that have a similar order still in place? I I don't know. I I know New York uh, State, for instance, had an emergency. They got rid of it. They brought it back. It's still in effect, but it went away for a while. So I don't know. I'm not sure which other states have had it continually in effect since March 2020. Um, uh, California might be the only one. There might be a few others that I'm not, I'm not certain. Uh, but California certainly is the one that also has the widest grant of authority to the governor. The governor mm-hmm. has all police power of the state, uh, which is everything, essentially. Wow. You know, all yeah, the power wow. the legislator could have. Like, you can't think of a broader grant of authority. So for yeah. the governor to have that for two years for anything that touches the pandemic. And the governor Newsom you know, used that very broadly, uh, you know, changing uh, employment compensation and uh, work- workplace safety requirements, uh, election reform. I mean, you, you, you name it, you know, every, every aspect of the economy, every aspect of society was touched by the pandemic. So for two years, he has this complete authority over anything that is somehow related to COVID. That, that is really should, should frighten any of us, that one yeah. person has that much power sure. without any accountability or, or, or guardrails. Here in Utah, here in Utah, we had a back and forth, right? We had a kind of a fight yeah. over these kind of emergency powers between our governor and our state legislature. And, you know, even though here in Utah, our governor and our legislature are are led by the same political party, uh, yeah. That's also the case in California. Did we see any kind of push and pull over these powers between the California legislature and the governor's office, or were they both just on the same page? Almost, almost none, which is, I think, really shocking. You know, the legislators for two years essentially letting the governor run run the the state almost you know single handedly. There was a, a lawsuit brought by uh, Kevin Kiley, uh, representative, and, and uh, 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 Representative Gall- Gallagher and Kiley are two representatives from California. They brought a lawsuit um, challenging the, some of the election orders that um, they, they got a, a good decision um, in the trial court, and then there was uh, the, uh, overturned in the, the Court of Appeals. So they sued and had a, a challenge um, against the governor, uh, but otherwise the legislator was really silent. Daniel Order is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Daniel, thanks for joining us today to talk about overreach and executive orders. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Coming up, there's a reason the rents are going up. What's the reason? KSL FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. Listen on any smart speaker and in your car at 102.7 FM. KSL News Radio, Utah's all-day companion for news. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to... Give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.